Warning, MF Uncensored contains adult language and discussion. Listener discretion is advised. We're a couple of misfits. We're a couple of misfits. What's the matter with misfits? That's where we fit in. We're not that being dilly. Don't go wrong willy-nilly. Seems to us kind of silly. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to MF Uncensored. If you guys are listening to us on the go, you can find us on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and basically anywhere you guys listen to podcasts. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Paul. It is just me in the studio right now just to uh, give you guys a little intro and also talk to you guys a little bit about who we interviewed today and also talk about our sponsor of the day. This episode is brought to you by Neil Getzlow and his book, Unmasked. If you guys are... uh, Anybody nowadays knows what it's like to have uh, feelings of desire, feeling of temptation, and also having trouble dealing with those. We got to sit down with Neil. He was one of our first interviews, one of our best interviews, and he told us about his struggles with uh, addiction and pornography and infidelity, and he wrote his tell-all book, Unmasked. And uh, not only did we get a chance to speak to him, but we also got our own copy of the book. Uh, So we want to thank Neil for his continued uh, support of our show over the past couple of months. And if you guys are interested in reading Neil's book, you can go to our website, themisfitfaction.com. There you'll find a link to it in our uh, affiliates page. You can also use the code free ship to get free shipping. You can also check out Neil's website, neilgetslow.com. That's N-E-I-L-G-E-T-Z-L-O-W.com. Uh, we're going to be having Neil back on the show again, so we'd love to hear from you guys about uh, some of your success with his book or also just your thoughts on it because my uh, producer Melanie and I have really enjoyed reading it so far. But uh, this interview is one that was really big for us. It was uh you know, one that we worked really hard to, to do. We actually had everybody in the studio for once to do this interview, and it was with Mr. Larry Hankin. Now, for those of you guys uh, who don't know Mr. Larry Hankin's name off the top of your head, if you guys watch Friends, or if you guys watch Billy Madison or Annie, he is one of the better character actors that we've ever gotten a chance to speak with, and uh, he played Mr. Heckles on Friends, he played Carl and Billy Madison, he was the dog catcher in Annie, and he's been around, so he gives us a really good in-depth look into Hollywood and growing up and going from comedy to movies to TV and just building a, a great resume over so many years. So sit back and enjoy our talk with Mr. Larry Hankin. Welcome back to the Multiverse Fancast and MF Uncensored. Now, we are super excited today. We have a very special guest. If you've watched a little show called Friends, saw a small movie named Billy Madison, or basically turned on your TV for the last couple of years, you may recognize today's guest. Before we introduce him, I'm Paul, and with me is Sean. Sean, how are you today? As always, very, very good. And we are super excited to announce that on the show today, Mr. Larry Hankin, also known as Marty... If you're on our Zoom Marty channel, Sharp. I, I got to tell you where the name came from. Yes, please. It's just no. I I played, I played a character. There was a tribute to Carl Gottlieb, who's a friend of mine who wrote Jaws, and uh, yep. so I they had a, a shark, just a picture of a shark, not not a moving picture, just a photo of a shark, and I was the shark's voice, and the shark's name was Marty. <laughs> So I was Marty the Shark on the Carl Gottlieb Jaws tribute. That is and that's awesome. And, and somebody on the other end who was running the show, like what you guys are doing, typed in Marty, you know, the, for the shark, when the shark picture came on. But, yeah, he typed it on, but he never took it off. And I don't know how what he did at his end 
forget the Marty thing. Oh, it comes up every time I go on Zoom, man, Marty. It's, I guess, you know, to Zoom, I am Marty the Shark. So you guys heard it first here on our podcast that Larry Hankin is also known as Marty. Marty the Shark. Breaking news. So, so that's that's that. Got that out of the way. Out of the way. For anybody who's confused. Yeah, yeah. They didn't get Larry Hankin. They got some guy named Marty. Yeah. A shark. What is he, crazy? <laughs> so the, one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about, first and foremost, is you have a very distinct look to you. Like in a lot of oh. different uh, shows and movies, you have this this very like Larry Hankin look to you. Now, one of the most famous is obviously Mr. Heckles from from Friends. Uh, my wife is a huge fan of Friends. I had to, a- I have to ask about it because otherwise she may divorce me. Tell, tell her that I'm a big fan of hers. Oh, even- oh, oh man, I'm gonna have to isolate that audio, and I'm gonna have to tell her that. So uh, she may even pop down at some point because she, she's doing some other stuff with. She's very big on Instagram. That's her thing. Oh, okay. I, I'm, I'm just discovering Instagram. I don't know anything about it, but I got to get on it. Oh, I'm going to tell her that she me. that she should reach out to you about Instagram, and she can help you get started. She'd love that. Cool. I, that would please her. Uh, Facebook. You know, contact me on Facebook. Oh, absolutely. So, for the look of Mr. Heckles, you, it's very again very Larry Hankin. How much input did you have on the creation of a character like Mr. Heckles? When you create your characters, is it is it something that you create? Is it something that you take direction on? How, how did Mr. Heckles especially come into play? That's that's a great question because I've always thought about it from my end about the creation of Mr. Heckles. But nobody's ever asked me about it. So here's the truth about it. I have had absolutely no input on Mr. Heckles, nor has anybody else. And I'm talking about costumes, hair, makeup, whatever. Nobody ever gave a hoot about what Mr. Heckles. And when I went on camera, and then I did, you know, did the show, I rehearsed for a week, put on the costume they gave me, did the show, went and watched it two weeks later when it came on, and I saw what Mr. Heckles looked like, it blew me away. Because the hair, I had long hair at the time. My hair was down on my shoulder. Um, nobody ever uh, combed it or, or said anything about it. And I didn't look in a mirror. So the hair of Mr. Heckles was always not on my mind. I would just be, you know, you're on, on camera now. Go downstairs, Larry. I would just rush and go on and do my part. And whenever I watched my show, I'd go, Oh my God, I didn't comb my hair. <laughs> so that's what Mr. Heckles was. It was, you know, get on stage now. Don't forget it. Just get on. St- and it would always surprise me when I watched the show as to what Mr. Heckles looked like. No input whatsoever. Never even looked at my hair. I would go, there was one time when my hair was just <laughs> up like this. I didn't do that. That was just because I was running and. So that, thank you for clearing that up for me and the, the fans. Oh, that's awesome, especially because, you know, there are a lot of celebrities who don't like seeing what they look like on screen or they don't like watching their own work. So it, it's fun to imagine you not only seeing your own work, but also being surprised. With- yeah, I would just blew my, and I go, I, nobody told me because the thing was sticking up. 
and you know, and so I got like kind of, you know, you know, discombobulated, unnerved, kind of, you know, peeled. Nobody told me. And then when people start to, you know, write me or, you know, fans, hey, I love your work, Mr. Heckles. I thought, no, everybody accepts that as Mr. Heckles. So, you know, Larry, shut up and just go along with it. It's Mr. Heckles. Now, other other characters, yes, I did take a lot of care. Oh, oh um, old Joe, you know, on Breaking Bad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, the hair was, because, because, and this is the other thing, I never talked about this. I never thought about it consciously, but always, the hair of my characters always was a big deal. Like some characters, some actors care about, you know, the look, uh, the, what jacket they're wearing or what costume they're wearing. Some care about the shoes. Because even though you don't see it, you're in them and it makes you either comfortable or not comfortable. So a lot of actors get really weird about the shoes that they are supposed to wear. Just because it's, uh, it, it, it affects how they feel, you know, about, about themselves. Um, so the hair is always, and, and that's why I got so PO'd about when I watched the show and go, oh my God, nobody told me. Because the hair, the hair of my characters is really what I fuss about. So, for some strange reason. And sometimes the uh, hair people, the hair people will not let me do what I want to do. So, you know, they go, no, no, it's going to look like this. And I, okay, fine. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to start a fist fight in the hairdressing room. <laughs> so which of your characters would you say has the best hair? Well, right off the bat, I'd say old Joe. Uh, you know, what characters are you talking about? Um, I did so many. There's only a couple of famous ones. I mean, like there's the, Tom Pepper in, in Friends, uh, I in uh, Seinfeld. So I would, the, the hair had to be like Kramer. So mm-hmm. that was up to the department. I mean, I had nothing to do with that. And, and I didn't want to have anything. I wanted to look like Kramer. So uh, I let that, so that was, that was taken care of. Friends, I guess is the most distinct, but I had nothing, to, nobody had anything to do with it. But old Joe, no, I, I worked on that. You know, letting my hair grow, putting grease in it. And then they put even more grease in it when I got there. And then the costume, I had, I had a say. I, I generally have a say about costumes. And that's a, a point about actors that maybe nobody knows. I discovered this. I'm writing a book about my adventures in Hollywood. And one of the, the chapters is about the clothing. And so I, I, I thought about it. Um, there is a point at which, as an actor, when you go in, that you have a chance, there's a slight window, very thin window, of when you can make a decision about the clothes you're going to wear. And a lot of times I missed that window or didn't know about it. So you just go in and put on the costume that you're given. And once you're given the costume, that's it, man, game over. You know, I've tried to make changes once the costume was given to me. And that's a big argument that I always lost. But there's a window. When you come to the set, generally when I come to the set, where you go is the, the first AD. He's the one who takes you to your dressing room. Mm-hmm. He gives you your instructions, where you should go, what time you're going to be shot. So you go to him and say, okay. And my first question is, is my costume in my dressing room? And if they say yes, game over. Yeah. You go in, you put it on. But if it's not in your dressing room, then I go, the second question is, where's the costume department? And so I head to the costume department and I say, 
where are my characters rack? Mm -hmm. And what that is, is all the different choices the costumer has and then the director has about what you're going to wear. And I can get in there and say, well, you know, your, your rack is over there. And then you can go over and you can call the costumer and go through it, which is what I do all the time. Call the costumer over and say, hey, I like this one and, and that. Can I wear this one and that? So at least they give you a choice, mm -hmm. you know, before you go. And then they'll go, yeah, yeah. Well, that, and then they'll let you put it on. And then they look at it. Yeah, go ahead. You know, show that to the director. And then the director will generally say, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, maybe change the hat. You know, but that's it. But you, so you had your choice. But once it's in your dressing room. It's done. You can't. Over. Yep. Oh, and sometimes I've stood on, on set in the beginning when you don't have any choice at all, man. You just you just cattle uh, where I've I've been standing on a set and they're just about to, you know, make the shot. And I look at myself or, or I feel and I go, what am I? I'm a grown man and I'm standing here in this. Why am I here? You know, but, you, you know, you've got the job and you got your lines and you just go on and do it. But I thought, you know. What am I doing in this costume? It's the stupidest thing I've ever worn. Why am I doing this? So then we got to ask, what do you think is the dumbest costume or the silliest costume that you've ever had to wear for any production? Okay, and I had that in mind. Now, I don't know the show because it was so, it was like the first or second or third role I ever had. Okay. You know? But what the, you know, I'm thin, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not a starker. I don't care about my body that much you know but i'm thin um they put me in a costume they say here's the costume put it on it was in my dressing room and i put it on and what they gave me was a a see-through t-shirt oh no uh, yeah it was a, it wasn't see-through it was large knit holes so you know each each hole was about that big you know it was like knit like it was like a fishnet it was like fishnet gotcha. yeah like fishnet stockings, oh, only with a fishnet, fishnet t-shirt with no undershirt, just, you know, my bare skin and, and this fishnet t-shirt. And I, I can't, no, I, I, it was the only, it's the only time in my life I've ever refused to wear it. So just so yeah. you know, my producer and my wife, Melanie, put on the headphones to listen in on our interview just now. And the first thing she heard were fishnet t-shirts and bare skin from Larry Hankin, and she's trying not to laugh too loud on the microphone. No, you it deserves laughter. What's her name? Her name is Melanie. Melanie, it's funny, but I wouldn't wear it. You'll never see it. <laughs> it doesn't exist. It doesn't I exist. To wear. I, I I brought it, I I took it off put on my own clothes and went to the director and I said, I'm not wearing this. You know, you can fire me. And he said, okay, yeah, take him, out. give him something else. Leave. Just leave him alone. He's crazy. <laughs> so I, I didn't know. But, but thanks for the laugh, Melanie. Okay. <laughs> she, she's, she's losing her mind right now. I, I really, I want to turn the camera and catch her, but she will not let me, but she is. I won't let you. <laughs> this is my show. <laughs> I don't know, but I got to live with her afterwards. <laughs> no, sir, Melanie. Nah. -uh. Okay. <laughs> but um, so for my for my wife, she yeah. was a big, like I said, big fan of Friends. My first time seeing you was actually Billy Madison, and you uh, you play the role of Carl, who um, 
you know, just oh, oh that that's yes. the hair. See, there's the hair. No, I didn't want to. My hair was down on my shoulders, like like the longest hair you ever saw on on Mr. Heckle. Miss white hair down her shoulders, and I wouldn't cut it. And my best friend was directing it at the time, mm-hmm. and so you know, I said, "Hey, put me in the movie." She said, "Oh, there's a great part, Carl. You could do Carl." I said, "Great, okay. I, I just want to meet Adam Sandler, and you're my best friend, so you get me in the movie." So he said, "Okay, but you have to cut your hair." No, man, I'm not going to cut my hair. No, he said. Well, you're not in the movie. I said, but you're my best friend. That was the argument I had. You're my best friend. What do you mean I'm not in the movie? You know, he said you have to cut the hair. No, I'm not cutting my hair, and you're my best friend. He says I'm your best friend, and I'm the director. You're not in the movie if you don't cut my hair. Now get out of here, because I was arguing with him. You know, and he said get out. So I left, and then I came back and said, okay, I'll cut my hair. So I did, but I really fought. So that Carl's haircut was just vicious because, you know, when you have long hair, to cut it that short. Oh, yeah. You know, I kept on saying, you know, that guy, that that hairdresser guy, you know, he's an executive, he's a CEO, and he has a ponytail. A lot of CEOs had ponytails at that time, you know, 70s and 80s, late 70s. I said, so I cannot be a businessman in a ponytail. No, cut it. See, my friend is a you know a control freak, which most directors are. Mm-hmm. You know, so, uh, so, I, so I knew it was a losing battle. I just wanted to see how far I could push my friend. And that's one of the <laughs> and, best things about best friends. Okay, here's the best thing about best friends. All right. He was fired and I wasn't. Oh. <laughs> you're, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to explain that one to us because now no, I can't. I you can't. Can? Oh, okay, all right. Well, but- well, I mean, no, I mean. He was, a, he's a great director. And I won't tell you his name. He's a great director. And he was, he directed two weeks of the movie before he was fired. Mm-hmm. It had nothing to do with me, but he was directing it too slow. That was, that was the reason he was going to do And he was because he was, he cared. Mm-hmm. And it was Adam Sandler's first movie. And it was on a bit, you know, it was on a very small budget for, for that kind of movie. Yeah. And so, so, so they kept on saying, you know, no, you got to just, you know, set up, shoot, set up, shoot. And no, my, my friend, I saw, I, I was watching the rushes. I mean, he was my friend. So I was going and watching the dailies and they were great. You know, I, I really liked it. And he was shooting me and the rest of the cast. So I didn't understand it, but it was a, a budget thing, mm. you know? So, so that, that was the reason, but I mean, the, the, the vengeance was mine. <laughs> I claimed the vengeance. Ha Cut my hair. Huh? You know, next time you you watch it when you tell me what to do. So it, it's interesting to hear a little bit of the production about Billy Madison. Any other stories that kind of jump out at you? All of them. In other words, the my book, my book is not about the movie. It's about the bullshit that goes on on set, where the camera and the acting goes on mm-hmm. on set. I mean, I may even call it that but that's not really good bullshit on set i love it the bullshit on set (laughs) but that's what it's about it's about all that kind of stuff where you're you're, you know the small stuff by the side while they're shooting you know the argument that's going over there i would go over there or when i was on escape from alcatraz uh because it was such a huge budget movie um that there was 10 boats that would take 200 cast members, the, the, the inmates, the actors who were playing the inmates 
on Alcatraz, for, Escape from Alcatraz, the Clint Eastwood movie. Mm-hmm. So they had 10 boats lined up every morning at uh, 7.30 or, or 7, maybe even 6.30. Along the shore, 10 tourist boats. They, they rented, you know, tourist boats. For two hours on, 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 on each end of the day. In other words, they had 10 tourist boats for two hours from like, say, 6.30 to 8.30. And then from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. to get from the island back to shore. So, and then for the rest of the day, they were tourist boats. Taking tourists to see Alcatraz, not to see you know, all these famous convicts, but to see Clint Eastwood and the Smokies, you know, the guides with the, with the smoky hats, mm-hmm. who were very official guides to escaping Alcatraz and escaping Alcatraz. They were so angry that because they really cared about Alcatraz and the famous gangster that was on it. I can't even think of it. Uh, Al, Al Capone. Birdman. Al Capone. Okay, Birdman Al Capone. Alcatraz. There you go. Al Capone. They were so PO'd that, they, that nobody wanted to see Al Capone's cell. They wanted to say, where's Clint Eastwood's cell? They got so angry. So finally, what they did was, and we had a pass. Alcatraz now is a national monument. Mm-hmm, I've been there. So, so you have to, if you're going to make a movie there, you have to go to the government to get, you know, certificate, pass, a contract. So they went to the government, the Smokies went to the government and tried to get us kicked off the island. Warner Brothers, get kicked Warner Brothers and Clint Eastwood off the island. And so we, we ignored them. Well, with the, you know, Warner Brothers and the directors ignored them. We just went on with our thing. Mm-hmm. And what, what one of the small agreements was that, that was kind of, you know, nobody... It was like a loophole, but nobody paid any attention until this fight started between the Smokies and Warner Brothers, between Smokies and Hollywood. There was a thing that says, um, if we're shooting anywhere where a tour would, would generally go through, that we had to stop filming to let the tour go by. That was, that was all it was. Mm-hmm. But what they started to niggle about was, no, you have to stop filming even if it was in the middle of a scene and you had to go away you know back off let the tour pass if they wanted to stand and talk about this cell they could do that and they had to move on and then we could continue so what they would do the smoky is they would shift their guide tours to where we were filming and they would just wait until we were in the middle of a scene. And they'd say, right this way, here's, uh, you know, Al Capone's cell right here. Sorry. Da, 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 da. And then they would do that all day long until finally we broke. I mean, Warner Brothers caved. So for the next week, the entire schedule was changed so that we were moved to an area where there was the least amount of tours that were already scheduled. So, you know, they couldn't change it. So we would, they would put the movie where there wasn't any tour. So that was a big thing. That was like where we were almost kicked off of, you know, and that was a big budget movie. So that, yeah, that was, that was one of the things off, off camera. See, that, those are the kind of things I, I write about. And your autobiography, you're currently writing that now? 
Well, it's it's an autobiography of just me on the set or how I got to the set, mm-hmm. like the like the audition or where I came from to even get invited, or, you know, to be in the movie because I was in Second City and I was in the committee, you know, improv groups, and I was a stand-up comedian before that. So there's a lot of different ways that people say, "Hey, why don't you get Hank in for this role?" But I'm not an actor. I'm a I'm a stand-up social anthropologist. Is what I am. <laughs> So, uh, so what was it like making the transition from doing stand-up to, to more scripted material? Oh, very hard. It was murder. And I also have dyslexia, so mm-hmm. learning lines it takes a little longer for me than, than most people. There's a lot, of, a lot of actors who are dyslexic in Hollywood, and we all have our different ways because dyslexia affects the brain in different kind of ways. Mm-hmm. It's similar, but so you have to find your own way around. So, yeah, uh, one of the things I do is uh, I uh, get my script early uh, so, so that I can learn I can learn it faster or, or, or get up to speed by the time I uh, learn it. Do you prefer so, taking roles where you get a little bit more of creative freedom to just kind of do your own thing, a little bit more well, improv? It, it's, you know, Hollywood is like your parents. I mean, it, it, it's just, you know, can I say this? You know, can I do this? Is it okay? You know, so in the beginning, that's all it is. It's your parents. Mm-hmm. You know, only only he's called a director, or he's called Warner Brothers, and you know. So no, you can't do anything. You're like 15 years old. You know, I can say this better. I can say this funnier. Just say it the way it's written. Okay. But then, as they get known, you know, and you get like a little little fan base or they know your work from something else then again can i say it different yeah 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 and then 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 it starts to loosen up as you go up the scale like as you grow older and you're 18 now you know can i stay out late tonight yeah yeah you can stay out late you know so so, but that that's what hollywood is it's nothing more than your parents and and whatever relationship you have or had with your parents that's the kind of settling in that happens with your subconscious and them and seeing where you're soft and where you're refusing. And, and that's the way it was. That's the way it is. And, and with every actor that I talked to, it would be different. In other words, it wasn't like my parents. Mm-hmm. It was like their parents. Hollywood. But it's, you know, so if, you have a, if, if you're cool, then you're going to be cool with Hollywood. But I was not cool with my parents. So... It's a, it was a fight every day, an uphill battle. So, you know, I want to do it this way. And one day, one day, this, this, I don't know, epiphanistic thing happens where they go, yeah, sure, go ahead. What the hell just happened? Yeah, and then, then you're a grown-up. And then, uh, okay, I'll give you a perfect example if you'd like. Oh, um, yeah, absolutely. With um, Seinfeld. You know, I, I had my chops down, you know, don't bump, bump into the furniture, keep burning your lines, don't walk out of your light, don't bump into other actors and stuff like that. So, you know, so but Larry David doesn't, he's not the director. He stands off to the side, like there's two, two positions, two Larry David positions, like this or like this. <laughs> and, and he just stands there. Uh, and there's another director, but he's just a traffic, you know, for the cameras and stuff like that. So what he does is he goes, Tom, Tom was the director. Now my character was named Tom, but Tom was the director. Tom, well, let me, I want to talk to Michael. 
okay. And then he would go talk to Michael. And he would call you aside. Hey, Michael, come here. And you'd go. And then Michael would go back and, and he would do the scene and the scene would be funnier. You know, and it was this, it was Michael's attitude or a line reading or maybe change the line or something like that. So, and he would go up to do this every time to like each, you know, Costanza or, you know, whoever. He would go up, pull him aside, go in and the, and the scene would be funnier. The guy is amazing, you know. So, uh, but he wasn't doing that with me. I never got a call over, you know, so I wanted a little Larry David funny dust. <laughs> I kept on saying, why isn't he talking to me? Why isn't he talking? So one day he says, uh, Tom, I want to talk to Larry. Yes, it's my turn. So he goes, Larry, come here. So I thought, okay, he's going to give me some like magic potion here. What, what, what's he going to tell me? And he says, I know what you're trying to do. Just like that. And I, no, I got like really pissed off immediately. And the, and the, the key word that pissed me off was, trying mm -hmm. i know what you're trying to do and i just got angry I, I have an attitude problem so it doesn't matter who you are once i get the problem uh, you know so i oh really and that's what i said oh really and um wh what am i trying to do and he said you're trying to do nothing which was exactly what i was trying to do mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, I had in my mind Buster Keaton, you know, stone face, you know, passive aggressive, either be angry or not nothing or, you know. So I said, and I said, and I go, wow, that's exactly what I was trying to do. I mean, I told him that. I said, yeah, why? He said, well, you're doing something. And he walked away. I thought, that's a, that's a, that's a direction. That's a great direction. That's a, probably the, the best direction I ever You're doing something. You're trying to do nothing. You're doing so? Mm -hmm. And he walked away. And then, so I did it again. And then he said, I want to talk to Larry again. No, no, no. He didn't say that. I did it. I did it. And I saw him walking towards me. But he was walking so fast that I thought, oh, he's going to talk to somebody behind me. Which he did pass by. But as he passed by, he said, you're still doing something. <laughs> I mean, so, so that's, you know, the how much room do you have to be your, you know, to, to improvise, how much. You know, but when, when somebody like Larry David is watching you, it doesn't matter what you improvise. He can come up with a topper, you know, or, mm -hmm. or, or correct it, you know. Or, so there, there's all kinds. You have to, like I say, it's like your parents. Sometimes I, I, I'll sneak out of the house and sometimes I won't sneak out of the house. And sometimes I'll come home late and sometimes I'll come home on time. And sometimes I dented the fender and sometimes mom did. Mom <laughs> dented the fender. Yeah. My mom would say, yeah, yeah, it was me. You know, she'd take, she'd take the shot because my, my dad was crazy. I mean, he just beat the shit out of me. I mean, it's just, yeah, I had one of those, one of those dads with the belt. The old school, the old school. Yeah. Old school. He was old school. He was old school. Before digital was old, before even that was old school, before digital. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah he yeah. was, he was, yeah. Anyway, so that, that, that's how, how much room you have to improvise or whatever. I'm just looking over. Sean's going through your entire filmography. <laughs> I'm waiting for him to just drop this like, no, no, no. Go ahead. Monumental question for no. you. It's gonna, it's gonna happen at some point. Sean's gonna drop some big question. So you've been in Hollywood, you know, been in acting for a long time. What was the best advice that you ever got? 
the best ad advice was we're trying to do nothing, you know, to you do something, something instead. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that. But um, but other than that being right on, but also a, a really funny joke that he <laughs> laid on me. But but it was true. Let me see the best advice I ever got as an actor. Oh, well, there's here's the thing. They don't give you much advice there is one thing i'll tell you but basically you have to learn mm -hmm. you, um a, a, a rock and roll guy once told me a great thing that that is the best advice they ever had as far as performing or you know listening to other people he said i don't well, what would he say i love learning i don't like to be taught mm. and, and i thought Wow, man, that is right on. That's me. You know, if, if, if I can learn what you taught, what you told me, but I won't listen to you. And then when I learned it, I go, oh, this is what the guy was telling me. But I don't care. I'd rather learn it myself. And, and you know, it's a, it's a, there's a yin and a yang to that. I mean, it's, there's good stuff and bad stuff about that. You know, you shut yourself off. You're, you're missing a lot of information. And, you know, learning is teaching yourself is a good thing to learn, you know? So I've had, um, I've had a lot of times where I didn't listen to somebody. And then maybe a year later I go, Oh, this is what he's trying to tell me. Oh my God. You know, I wasted a year just because I didn't listen. So it, it does come back to bite you. Mm -hmm. uh, attitude, you know, that my, my, that, that my attitude problem. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with an attitude problem, and uh, you know, obviously, you've done. Well, I mean, in my in my attitude sometimes it, it gets in the way. I mean, yeah, learning something yeah. really important that I learn a year later and go, "Oh my God, this is what he was talking about," and I could have saved a whole year of fumbling around. Just you know, just stop and listen and do it and see mm -hmm. if it works. You know? So ad advice, yeah. So the the advice that I tried that was really great advice, but you have okay. So I was doing a cop show. It was um, a really famous actor. He, 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 he did a comedy cowboy show when black and white. This is when I was a beginning actor. Cowboy show. He played a, a fancy Dan who captured criminals, but he was kind of funny. I mean, okay. had, it wasn't a comedy show. It was a Western mm -hmm. cop, you know, sheriff. But he was funny. He, he was funny. But anyway, he told me this. So I'm doing a scene with him, this, this star of the show. I'm doing a scene with him. And in the middle of the scene, he just turns and walks away. Out, of, off the set, behind the camera. And he just left me there. And everybody, nobody said anything. You know, this is my first day. He's been doing this series. So I guess everybody else understood what was going on. But I'm just standing there alone. Everybody just, you know, took a break while he walked around. Then came back in. He said, right, "Let's do it again." Then the camera director says, "Okay, you know, action." And he does it again. Goes through the whole scene. Uh, okay, cut. Moving on. I go up to him and I go, "What? What was that all about?" I mean, I didn't. What? Why? Why did you just walk out of the middle of the scene? It was going along fine, you know. So he said, "No, it wasn't going along fine for me." Now this is a sitcom. And budget is really big in making sitcoms. It features large on any kind of acting. And if they get it in the can, they'll use it. 
So it wasn't going good for me, he says. It wasn't going good for me. And I knew if I finished this scene, they're going to use this and say, moving on. So if I walk out in the middle of the scene, the entire shot is lost. Hmm. Good. That's what I was going for. They can't use that. So I walked out of the scene, got comfortable, got centered, came back and did it. It felt good. And I did the scene. But if I had continued with the scene I walked out of, they would have used that one. And I didn't want that. So I tried that in another's. In the next movie, in the next sitcom I did, or or, or show, television mm-hmm. show that I did, I thought, okay, I remember that. That's cool. So I'm doing a scene. You know, I'm just a hired actor. I'm doing it with the star of that scene. And it didn't feel comfortable to me, so I just wheeled on my heel, walked out of the scene and behind the camera, and the whole place exploded. What the fuck is going on fine? It may be one of the best stories I've ever heard. walking over. What are you, crazy? What are you doing? Well, you know, it wasn't going well for me. It wasn't going well for you? What the fuck are you? Oh, that 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 was great. That's hilarious. Wow. Because, you know, it's funny, we, we do a lot of movies and TV shows, and, and to hear the other perspective is is a lot of fun for us because, you know, it's it's one thing, like, we just did a show about... Like, Talk to me about that. So we just did a show on The Incredible Hulk, you know, the TV show from the 70s, yeah. and we were talking about it, and it's really easy for us to talk about, oh, you know, they use this music producer, they use, you know, this cinematography, this, that. So it's fun for us to hear... The, what happens behind the scenes and, and kind of, you know, as an actor, what kind of process you go through and because a lot of guys give the standard interview questions yeah. and standard interview answers. So to, to hear a story like well, that. Well, your parents, they're, they're talking about you're asking them about their parents, <clears throat> quote unquote. So you talk about your parents. See, this is the way I talk about my parents, the way I'm talking. <laughs> I mean, my attitude towards them, but they didn't laugh. <laughs> so so when you get a good an actor and he's not giving you anything you know it's because he respects hollywood and he does and he wants to get another job and mm-hmm. he's being nice and i don't give a <laughs> really don't. i'm not an actor i'm a stand-up social anthropologist period mm-hmm. as you can tell by my spiel with you guys but see that, that makes it I even think. more fun though you know it... well yeah but they're they're looking for a job i'm looking to be on your show and and to have a good time, yeah. But uh, it, it it adds a very nice sense of realism because you know we've talked to some other people and we talked to especially like other podcasters and it's a very like, well, do you do this? And yes, I do this, and it's almost almost scripted. And we we try not to go into any of our stuff with scripts because you find yourself then sticking to well, I got to do this talking point and this talking point, and now it just feels like a conversation. Exactly. Exactly. So that's my point. My point is Hollywood is your parents, whatever your relationship to your parents is. Are you a good boy or a bad boy? I wasn't a good boy. You know? <laughs> I mean, I, I was a good boy until I, I you know, in other words, it wasn't a smooth transition. Mm-hmm. It was an attitude problem. I either was, you know, passive aggressive, basically. Yeah. With, with my parents. It was either, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Or no, man, no way. <laughs> so was there any point though in your Hollywood career where you where you stopped and you were like maybe this isn't for me maybe I'm not the right fit maybe I'm not going to oh, yeah. toe All this line time. every 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 job I'm not doing this anymore mm-hmm. uh, it was just too hard too hard too many uh, until see there, there there comes a line where 
all of a sudden, the money. <laughs> it's not the job, it's the money. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. the money. I don't want to fuck this up. I, I'm getting paid a lot of money. I'll tell you where it, it did work, where my passive-aggressive attitude, I didn't care anymore, and I let it be known that I didn't care anymore. So it was recently, in the last year, because of the COVID thing. Mm-hmm. I saw, you know, I wasn't getting that many jobs. I didn't care. I don't like auditioning. I'm never as good in the audition as I am, you know, on the screen. Um, there's a certain thing with, with, with the actor gene that um, if there's film in a camera, you, uh, adrenaline and endorphins are released. And if, if, I, if there's no camera, like an audition, you know, it's just a storeboard camera and there's not even a director there, mm-hmm. there's an assistant. I don't get any adrenaline. You know, it's, it's not important to me. I don't care if I get this job, you know, because if I cared about getting this job, it would have hit me when I got the script. Holy cow, man, this is unreal. You know, the adrenaline has started, you know, days before I show up for the audition. It's, holy cow, I got to get this. But, you know, so, um, yeah, I, I just... I, I just, I guess it depends on the on the part. Then I guess you know, does the does the part get adrenaline going? So, but, yeah. but I'm not I, I'm not an actor. I suddenly realized about two years ago that I really was, in fact, a stand up social anthropologist. I'm not kidding. That's a joke, but it's what I am. I'm a storyteller. Mm-hmm. When I first started in show business and left the house, or left Syracuse University and went to Greenwich Village with my buddy, Carl Gottlieb, who, who wrote Jaws. I mean, we were friends in, in Syracuse, so we go way back. We went to Greenwich Village, and he wanted to be a writer all the time, and I didn't want to be anything. I, I just wanted to hang, you know? So I would just get odd jobs, you know, sweeping up, uh, cleaning duckboards in a bar from 6 a.m. to 2 a.m., and I would have my days and nights free, not much money. I was starving. Carl will have to steal food for me or whatever. <laughs> money. And I started stealing food from the bar, you know, particularly sides of bacon because I could slip them in the back. You know, it was flat. You guys heard it here first. Larry Hankin stole bacon. That's going to be the sides of bacon. Not, oh, okay. Not, not one. <laughs> I stole this. Lab. Just one bacon, one piece. Can you cook this, Carl, for me? <laughs> no, I was the sides and stuff like that. But I only stayed there for two weeks because I thought they're going to see this hole in the refrigeration, you know, department. <laughs> I was you know, don't stay. And then there's, there's rules. You find rules all in life. As you go along, like the rule is don't steal a, a can larger than this you know it bulges so you know little little like sausage those little sausage things (laughs) little sausage cans you steal that sides of bacon flat things flat you know where i got the ideas from harpo marx the raincoat with the spoons i would wear a raincoat to work every day every night i would show up at 1 30 in the morning with a raincoat matter it's hot out yeah, but it's at night, you know, it might rain. It might rain, you know, yeah. It might you, rain. Never know. you never know. You, you never know. <laughs> you, know. you never know. And then I would, you know, stand by the door. They would lock me in. I, didn't, never, I never figured that out. I was only there two weeks. But they would lock me in, set a lock on the door. Well, I guess when they left, they left and left me inside so they would have to lock. They didn't say, hey, lock it from the, out, from the inside. They locked it. So when the chef came in at 6 in the morning to let me out, I would stand by the door 
And then when the door opened, I would just, you know, just slide out because they didn't want him to converse with me, mm-hmm. to get involved with me because he would see maybe there's a bulge somewhere. <laughs> so I would just slip out. So I just stand by the door and go out. But I only just stayed there for two weeks because so um, I, I would watch uh, stand up. Uh, because I had nothing to do, you know, the, the open mic nights. Mm-hmm. It was free. I didn't have much money. I, you know, get buy a cup of coffee at like eight, and I would stay there until midnight, you know, just watching open mic. So I was saying, I'm funnier than these guys and this girl. <laughs> what the hell is going on? So I would get up there, you know, I just, hey, you know, so I would sign up, you know, three minutes. What could go wrong in three minutes? I was god awful, man. I really was. There's a difference between making you guys laugh or having a conversation where we are laughing together Mm -hmm. and getting up on a stage, even for three minutes and making people laugh. Mm -hmm. I, that was a, a bridge too far. The the holy, the holy shit moment. Yeah. It's like, Whoa, this isn't anything like hanging out with the guys in the lunchroom. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not anything like that, but it was only three minutes. And here's the thing about open mic nights. It wasn't me. It was the audience, how forgiving they are, because they don't care if you're funny or not. Even if they say, ladies and gentlemen, he's the next comedian, Larry Hankin. They don't care if you're Larry Hankin or if you're a comedian or if you're funny. They're waiting for their friend to come on next. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to cause any trouble. They're not going to heckle. They're not going to boo. They're not going to laugh. They're not going to boo. They're not going to do anything. They're going to sit there quietly for three minutes. So it's very forgiving because there was no danger. There was no embarrassment. You know, you just go up there and you talk for three minutes, maybe five minutes if you get a laugh or two, and you get off. So it was the best time as, as far as a learning experience. We, on me wanting to learn myself and not taking any, you know, hey, you know what you should do with that joke? And just leave me alone. I'll, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. And I was because in six minutes, I was open. Uh, six minutes. In six months, which is a very short time in show business years six months i was opening for woody allen so wow, I, was, crazy. I guess i was doing something wow. right yeah yeah that 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 is amazing those are my salad days i was young i was cocky <laughs> you know <laughs> i was funny you know and i never wrote anything I, I don't know how to write jokes to this day i cannot write a joke i don't mm-hmm. know how to do it i mean i mean i know the the general the, the you know i i, I know the the, the yeah, the general situation and the building blocks and the, you know, familiarity, set up, punchline, familiarity, set up, punchline. You know, if you don't, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're not going to think of it. But so that I could get, but I have it, I guess, in my DNA. That's why I say I'm a stand up social uh, anthropologist. I would get up and just talk my day for three minutes or five minutes. I mean, it's not very hard. You, you, anybody could do it. You guys could do it. You just get up and talk your day. And if they laugh, fine. And if they don't, no. The difference is that somewhere in me, and I have no control over this, I never mentioned it to myself, is I have a photographic memory for laughter, punchlines and laughter. And I have no truck, my mind does. My, my mind doesn't have mm-hmm. any truck for things that I want to be funny that aren't. So in other words, if I get up on stage for three minutes and I get two laughs, the next night when I get up on stage, I will remember the setup and punchline of the two laughs 
and I will not remember anything of else what I said the <laughs> night before. So I start with those two laughs. I, that's what I start the next night. I get two laughs. Oh, I got two laughs. All right, cool. And then I talk about, and if I get two more laughs, then the third night, I got six jokes. Two, two, and the two that I get on the third night. And then the fourth night, you know, six and maybe eight. And that's how I built hunks, me memory. And I went, and that's how I got to open for Woody Allen. I never, ever had written anything. What I was opening with was 20 minutes that I had consciously for six months built up at open mic nights, 10 minutes or five minutes at a time. If, you, if you're funny, they'll let you go longer. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. by the time I was opening for Woody, I, they would give me 10 minutes on an open mic. Oh, that's awesome. Well, yeah, it was an honor. So I would close the evening. Mm -hmm. you, know, you're, you're, you go on last because you're, you're good. The biggest. And that's when, you know, Woody's manager came into the coffee house. It was a coffee house. And he said, hey, you got a manager? No. You want one? Yeah. How about me? Okay. Okay. Because that's the thing in Greenwich Village in the 60s. Who Everybody was there. Dylan was there. Peter, Paul, and Mary was there. Everybody who's famous and old now was in the village then. All the rock stars, all the guitar, anybody with a guitar. It was folk, folks, you know, folk uh, guitar. And then every once in a while, a stand-up comedian, very few women. But everybody wasn't there to be famous. Everybody was there to get a manager. Hmm. That, was, that was the ultimate, to get representation. If you got representation, hey, I got, I got a manager. Oh, man, that's so cool. You know, who is it? You know, where were you playing? You know, what time did he come in? You know, they, to, you know, they don't, they don't know. care about what you're doing. They care about who's, yeah, who's doing yeah, it for who's you. Who's coming in? You know, when, when does Woody Allen's manager come into the cock and bull? What, what time? When, when did he come in? You know, because they would do the rounds. I mean, the managers and that time, the rock managers, the folk singer managers, the comedian managers, they would make the rounds of the Greenwich Village. They were all together. I mean, it was like four blocks of, of coffee houses. Mm -hmm. So the managers would just, and, and the agents would just go around, you know, stop in, listen for a while, go out. So that's how I got my manager. I mean, you know, I didn't know who he was. I didn't even know he was Woody, Woody Allen's manager. He never told me that until about a couple of weeks later when I was, you know, I had bragging rights in the bars, in the coffee house bars for you. Hey, I got a manager, you know. Oh, what's his name? I don't know. Jack Rollins. Jack Rollins? You got Jack Rollins' manager? Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah that, that's great. What? That's Woody Allen's manager. No Wait, what? kidding. I got Woody Allen's manager? <laughs> yeah. Holy cow, man. That's great. And then he started booking me. You know, he then I would do the coffee house for about a month. And then he'd send me out with Woody. And I would, and then, and then we separated because here's the other thing. Then you find out there's Woody's audience and there's your audience. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're not the same. Yeah. So as I was growing, you know, and getting my, you know, but still I wasn't writing. I, I didn't know how to write. I, I would just get up, you know, I'd, uh, three minutes in the beginning. Audience will give you two minutes of free time. If you're interested, ladies and gentlemen, Larry Hankin, uh, comedian, they'll sit and not laugh or whatever. They'll listen to you for two minutes and then they start to, and three minutes, you know, you're, you're dead, man. I, even if you're funny, they don't care anymore. You know, so there's like a two minute stuff. I had this all, you know, so I, I would, and uh, yeah, I started to, 
noticed that I was getting less and less laughs in Woody's audience and he would be killing when he would get on. And, and then, so what I was developing, and I didn't know this, but it's, just, it's, in other words, repetition is learning. You do something long enough, you're gonna get better at it. You know, if you guys are doing this for, you know, another two years, you're gonna be much better than you are now, mm -hmm. just because. So I was getting better and what I was learning was I was learning critical thinking. And I didn't have critical thinking. My house was vapid. So I was learning critical thinking and I was starting to talk about politics and religion and, and, and money and parents and things you don't talk about. And so Woody's, as Woody's audience was starting to, or I was starting to leave. So, and, and, and Jack noticed that. He said, yeah, it's time for you to go out on your own. I said, why? Woody Allen, you know, Woody's going on the TV. He's doing TV stuff. Why don't you get me on TV stuff? <laughs> Woody has TV material, Larry. <laughs> what do you mean? What, what TV material? Woody doesn't talk about marijuana or breasts <gasps> or dicks and say shit on television. Oh, you're a critical so I had to go off on my own and that was really weird because now I had to take the full brunt of whatever the audience gave me. There was no Woody to, you know, sort of soften the blow and come on and cool everything down or for them to shut up and wait for Woody to come on. Mm -hmm. Now it was just you. And so I was being pulled off the stage by police. I mean, Lenny Bruce, it was Lenny Bruce time. Yeah. So the police would be, you know, and, and that I just didn't like. So I would tell Jack. I mean, guys would come at me with beer bottles. Get the fuck off the stage, man. Bring on the Kingston Trio. Oh, Woody Allen, Kingston Trio. Same. Gotcha. Not me. So it's so a beer bottle, man. I said, you know, I walked off the stage. Hey, and then uh, the, the bartender said, what are you doing? There's nobody on stage. Get back on stage. What'd you walk up stage for? The guy came in with a beer bottle, man. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw that. Well, he's sitting down now. Go back on it. Oh, God. No, I'm not until you... Yeah, right. No, it's, you, you've got to throw him out. I'm not about... If you don't get it back on there, you're fired. Okay, then I'm fired. All right, get the fuck out of here. And I walked out. I mean, that was what was going on. So I called Jack and I said, hey, man, I, I can't do this. I'm a, I'm a middle-class Jewish kid. These people don't like you know me saying things. I, I don't get that. You know, because I was also opening for rock bands. So, mm -hmm. you know, different I, crowd. I didn't Very different crowd. Yeah. You know, a totally different crowd. Yeah. So I didn't understand. I mean, I understood, but I didn't understand, you know. So Jack said, this is what Jack said, Woody Allen's manager. He said, well, why don't you join Second City? They're doing the same thing as Lenny is doing, but they own the theater and their stage is three and a half feet high. So by the time they crawl up and you got five other people on the stage, you can beat up the guy with the beer bottle. <laughs> you got backup, oh, you got enforcement. Come on, Jack. <laughs> come on, Jack. Oh, that's awesome. But that was, that's what he told me. So that's what I did. I joined Second City. And sure enough, you know, I had five, four or five other people on the stage with me. The stage was three and a half feet above the audience and they owned the theater. So if anybody didn't like it, they throw them out. But we were doing Lenny stuff, you know, and so it was great. And my stuff. In other words, everybody was doing whatever they wanted. It was improv. And so I didn't have to memorize lines. I could still, you know, say what was in my head, but it was off of other people. 
but it was in my 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 wheelhouse. It was in my wheelhouse. I could and and I excelled at it. You know, I mean, I I, I was good at it. I I, I belonged, and so I'll, and then a couple of us broke off. Hey, let's start our own theater in San Francisco, and so that's what we did. About five of us. Alan Meyerson uh, was a director there. He he was the one who had the idea. Mm-hmm. Hey, we don't need this, and uh, we can make more money if we just start our own theater. We're pretty funny. So we got five people and we went to San Francisco and we were. And we were compared to Second City, but that's how I got to LA. They would fly up to see the show. Uh, producers, producers, directors, casting people. Because we were closer than Second City. We had a reputation of being like Second City. Well, mm-hmm. of course, we were from Second City. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> we were trained by Second City. So we, we started getting calls to fly down and back. So it was the best of both worlds. We were making stage money, but doing our own thing up in San Francisco and then making big bucks for a week down there doing sitcoms and come back. And then finally, I just went down and stayed, you know, because of the money. And it was really a big mistake. I mean, uh, no, 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 no big, big mistake. I mean, the money was great. And I'm here talking to you guys. But, but uh, you know, the, the, the committee closed. I mean, because everybody left and I was down here. So the committee closed. And I was very sad about that because that was really, I mean, being a stand-up social uh, anthropologist as a stand-up comedian and being a stand-up social anthropologist as an improv actor is, is really where my mind is at. Yeah. It's, you know, that's where I go. I, I go to it. I'm a mocker. So I, anything I see that mock, man, I just, it's like, it's like candy to me. And mocking is not big in the general public. You have to find your audience. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a job. Now, well, you guys know, you, yep. you have to find your audience. We all have to find our audience. It's not given to you. I, I'm, I'm big with Mr. Heckles as Mr. Heckles. But they're not my audience. It's 15-year-old girls and their moms who saw the original showing of Friends. That's who watched Friends. Uh, my, my wife's chuckling. Yeah. My wife's chuckling right now. She's like, that's me. I'm, I'm that person. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's their, their, their children, the, the, wife, the, the original ones, mm-hmm. their children who are about 15 or 16 now, or maybe their grandchildren, I don't know, and their husbands. And, you know, wish my wife, she loves friends, wish my wife a happy birthday. My wish, my daughter loves friends, wish my daughter a happy birthday. <laughs> my girlfriend loves friends, wish my, my girlfriend a happy birthday. Oh, we should my have done this interview next month. Friends. Yeah, wish my mom happy birthday. Yeah, that, that, so I, that, I, they're out. I mean, they're not, you know, if I do my own thing, that I can't go to them. I'll have to bring them all right, so we're we're getting close to our time, Sean. Any questions for oh, yes. the legend himself? Uh, I've been, wow, I've been I've been trying to think of a good one, and um, I see because it's no oh, <laughs> true. Um, you've worked obviously with so many directors in film, um, a lot of influential directors: Don Siegel, John Hughes, um, Rob Reiner, John Huston. I mean, is there anyone yeah. specifically that you loved working yeah. for? John Huston, the great. I worked with him. I, I would do anything for that man. Also, Don Siegel, who directed Escape from Alcatraz. These are these are masters. These yes. are filmmakers. You can't get any better. You know, my years in Hollywood, 
the way I got through it, because they, they weren't my parents, well, they, they were my parents, was I was going to film school. I, I, that's, that's what I would, when I would audition, I'd say, I'm going to be on the set with John Houston. I'm going to see how a movie is really made. And it's true, man. These guys are beyond, you know, Larry David. Um, I, I opened for Woody Allen. He's a great director. But, but I was there. I talked to him, you know. Um, John Houston is so cool. I, I'll tell you a quick, quick John Hughes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, John Hughes. I, okay, so I didn't care what I did for the man. It was a small part. I, I got five, a uh, couple of lines. Oh, no, no. They didn't even tell me what it, what it was. They just said, my uh, agent said, get down to Warner Brothers. I think it was Warner Brothers. I'll use Warner Brothers as a, just a general. general. <laughs> Go down to Warner Brothers. What, what was it? What was it? Annie. Uh, Annie, John Houston is directing uh, Annie. It's a big major motion picture. Get down there. They're closing in an hour. Well, well what's the part? What's the part? Well, it, they'll, they'll give it to you when, you when you get there. You know, just go, go, go. So I lead-footed it down there to out in the valley. It's about a 45-minute drive, speeding. And I get down there, and they hand me the script, and I read it. What did, what did he say? Um, it was, who did, oh, yeah, it was the dog catcher. Yeah. That was it. The dog catcher. So it was a small part. So, ah, great. I don't need it to get it early. The, the dyslexia, that's fine. I can memorize this right here. Okay. So I'm, I'm waiting there, and I got the, my lines down. And this a casting agent comes in, says, okay, Larry. And she takes me in to where he's directing Annie. It's in, in, inside. He's sitting in his director's chair. And he's watching uh, Rushes on a big screen. TV Village, it's called. You know, he's, watching, he's watching. And he comes over to me and uh, he turns to me. Turns to me. Brings up, and and uh, what she does is, this casting, the big time. I mean, it's John Houston, so it's a big time casting director. Or one of them. So she puts her hand, she gets behind me, puts her hands on his shoulder, and she leads me to John Hughes, right in front of him. You know. And he goes to her. What are you doing? She says, oh, I was just putting the actor in, in, in front of you. Please don't touch my actors, all right? Thank you. <laughs> Okay, Larry. Hi, Larry. And he knew my name right away. Hi, Larry. Uh, how are you? Fine. Okay, so you, you know the part? Yeah. Okay, uh, you want to do it? Uh, yeah. Um, okay. And then she goes behind me again. Now, my hair again was hippie. Hippie like that's <laughs> my shoulders. So she goes behind me, and she takes my hair like this, you know, underneath. Like, like a ponytail, she lifts it up like this behind me. Now what are you doing? Um, I'm lifting his ha hair up, so he's going to be the dog catcher. He's going to need to cut his hair off, so I'm just showing you. I'm a director, and I have an imagination. So I can imagine my actors, what they'll look like without you touching them. I told you not to touch my actors. Please don't touch my actors. I'm thinking, this guy is great. He's on my side, man. He's for me. This is cool. I will climb the highest mountain for this. <laughs> so because so she's now she's like totally shocked, and she's a big deal. But you know, she's now chastised. 
<laughs> is the word that comes to mind. She stands aside and he says, okay, so uh, you, you understand the part? Yeah. Okay. So thank you very much, Larry. Thank you. You can go now. So that was, that was it. That was the whole audition. And she just started, I saw it from the corner of my eye. She started to <laughs> go like this, you know, to lead me out. She went, okay, Larry, this way. So she learned. Okay. So now I go to the, to the set. So right away, the guy's on my, my side. I, you, you have no idea what that does to my heart. Okay. I, and it's John Houston. So now I'm, I, I'm in the show. I show up for work. Uh, and I go to the AD and I said, where's my costume? Is it in my dressing room? And he goes, no. Yes. Where's the, where's the costume uh, department? And he said, right over there. So I go in. Hey, I'm Larry and I'm doing the dog catcher. Where's my rat? He says, it's right over there. It's going according to plan, <laughs> just like I know. And so he goes, right here. And I'm going through it like that. And this guy comes up and he goes, uh, what are you doing here? And I guess everybody in Hollywood at first has an attitude of some sort. If you're not, you know, if you're new, attitude. What are you doing here? Oh, I'm, I'm, it's okay. I asked the uh, costume uh, lady. This is my rack. I'm the dog catcher. I'm just going through my, I have your costume. Oh, okay. Uh, here. And he, he goes over to a table and he takes it. And what he does is, to my mind, he takes a piece of cardboard, a black, uh, you know, um, that that color cardboard you know that yep yep crew a crew <laughs> um cardboard it's about that thick about that thick and square about that square about 15 inches square and it looked like cardboard but it's not what it is it's cloth it's pressed it's squeezed down it's pressurized it's a costume it's it's a um, you know the uh, mechanics costume you know from automobile mechanics yeah. Blue, yeah, 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 yeah. coveralls that's what it is. Only it's a crew. It's it's uh, you know a cardboard color, mm -hmm. but, it's, uh, but it's pressed. It's washed, cleaned, pressed, and starched into this little fifteen-inch square, about two-inch thick. Looks like a card, and it's like a platter. And he hands me this platter, and he says, "That's your costume. Put it on." And I go, "I'm not putting this on." And he goes, "Why not?" I said. It's clean, it's starched, it's pressed. I, you know, and I pull it up, you know, you know, and I stick my hand in it, in the sleeve. You know, because my father, you know, when I was a little kid, he used to get his white shirt starched. I yeah, know yeah. what starched is. You know, and I used to ask him, can I put my hand in it? And yeah, okay. So I said, I'm not putting this on. Why? I'm a dog catcher. It's 1930, lower New York. I'm carrying around you know, mongrels all day long. It's got to be filthy. I'm a dog catcher. And he says, that's your costume. Put it on. Or we're going to Mr. Houston. Mr. Houston. Let's go to Mr. Houston. Cool. So he marches out with this platter. Like, like it's a platter. He's holding it like this. <laughs> and we're, we're, we're walking. He's holding it like this. And we're walking. And I see we're outside now. And it rained the night before. But the sky is blue. But there's puddles all over, but, you know, places for us to walk, but, you know, dry. And there he is, and he's sitting, same thing, sitting on his director's chair. He's watching, you know, rushes like this, you know, always, always like this, watching professions. And then he, he hears us come and he turns around. And he says, oh, how you doing, Ralph? Hi, Larry. What's the problem? I mean, he just knew. He knew, yeah. He, just knew. he goes, what's the problem? 
So Ralph says, um, this actor will not put on this costume. And John turns to me and says, uh, is this true, Larry? You won't put on the costume? I go, no, I won't. Why is that? Because it's, look at it, it's starched, it's clean, it's pressed. I'm a dog catcher. I'm carrying around mongrels. I'm not going to put that on. It, it, I don't, it, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, it's not dirty. Ralph, give me that. So Ralph hands him the platter. So John Houston gets up and he walks away from us. And he's got the platter and he walks towards the biggest, muddiest puddle on the, in the grass that he sees. He walks and I, I see his shoes because I see he's walking towards the puddle. I see his shoes. He's got on very expensive Italian leather loafers. A beautiful pair of Italian leather loafers. And he walks into the puddle. With his shoes in the middle of the puddle. And as he's walking, he's pulling apart and he <laughs> arms length and he drops it into the puddle and then he walks all over. And I'm going, oh my God, you know, it's, it's over his, his socks are getting, stepping all over it. And then he Great, you know, just daintily picks it up with two fingers, you know, picks it up, hold it at arm's length so it doesn't drip on him. And he walks back to Ralph and he hands it to Ralph and he says, dry this off and put this on this actor. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, Larry. Just go right, right back to it. That's awesome. That's amazing. That's great. Cool, man. I, I'll do anything for that guy. Oh, well, th- this was incredible. This was—it was so great to talk to you and, really and to was. hear some of these stories. And well, that's in my book. It's going to be in my book. So I, I wanted to ask you because my wife does run a book page on Instagram. So oh no, seriously, I got to talk to her. This is uh, because everybody's telling me you got to get on Instagram. I don't advertise at all, you know. So in the future, I mean, I'm still writing the book. Yeah, yeah. this is important. I was wondering. Who would I get? To, I mean, if she can help me, fine. If she can tell me who to go to, that's fine, too. Oh, yeah. She I, she will definitely be reaching out to you at some point. Is it okay if I give her your contact info and all Yes. That? No. T- I'm, I'm, this is very serious. I mean, the, the the only way to get out there is advertising and doing, you know, interview shows. So Absolutely. I only do uh, interview shows. I don't know how to advertise. So we so, would yeah. love to talk to you about your book at another point. I'll have her reach out to yeah. you. Larry Hankin, right. the the legend. This was thank a Thank you so blast. much. This was awesome. Yeah, oh, we, thank you very much. And we, we definitely want to talk to you again soon, so we'll be in touch. Oh, yeah, when the book comes out. You know, it's been down the road. But Wait, yeah. Do you have yeah. like a tentative date for that book when it's going to be hitting shelves? No, because I, I got 120 pages. Uh, I got 120 pages. I got to get up to 250 I got about uh, a lot of it sketched out. So I don't know, six months. Absolutely. But, but I'd like to get into the Instagram thing because I have a website and I have another book out called Already, called The Loopholes Dossier that I never advertised. So she could help me with that. Oh, it's I think book. she, I, the I think we could, Dossier. yeah, absolutely. We'll have her reach out. We'll, we'll definitely also get you back on the show when the book comes out. So that that's exciting. That's awesome. We, again, a pleasure and honor to talk to oh, you. Thank you so much. Really? Okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you so really much, great. Larry. Have a good day. You too. Bye bye. Oh, 